John Norton, Chapter Eleven of Celibates by George Moore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by James Carson. The front door was open. She heard her father calling, but she felt she could not see him. She must hide from his sight, and dashing upstairs, she double locked her door. The sky was still flushed. There was light upon the sea, but the room was dim and quiet. Her room. She had lived in many years. Had seen it under all aspects. Then why did she look with strained eyes? Why did she shrink? Nothing has been changed. There is her little narrow bed and her little bookcase full of novels and prayer books. There is her work basket by the fireplace, by the fireplace closed in with curtains that she herself embroidered. Above her pillow there is a crucifix. There are photographs of the Miss Austins and pictures of pretty children cut from the Christmas numbers on the walls. She started at the sight of these familiar objects and trembled in the room which she had thought of as a haven of refuge. Why? She didn't know. Something that is at once remembrance and suspicion filled her mind, and she asked if this was her room. She sighed and approaching her bedside raised her hands to her neck. It was the instinctive movement of undressing, but she did not unbutton her collar. Resuming her walk, she picked up a blossom that had fallen from the fuchsia. She walked to and fro, then she threw herself on her bed and closed her eyes. She slept, and then the moonlight showed her face convulsed. She is the victim of a dream. Something follows her, she knows not what. She dare not look around. She falls over great leaves. She falls into the clefts of ruined tombs, and her hands, as she attempts to rise, are laid on sleeping snakes. They turn to attack her. They glide away and disappear in moss and inscriptions. Before her the trees extend in complex colonnades. Silent ruins are grown through with giant roots and about the mysterious entrances of the crypts there lingers yet the odour of ancient sacrifices the stem of a rare column rises amid the branches the fragment of an arch hangs over and is supported by a dismantled tree-trunk and through the torrid twilight of the approaching storm the cry of the hyena is heard the claws of the hyena are heard upon the crumbling tombs and the suffocating girl strives with her last strength to free herself from the thrall of the great lianas. But there comes her her sweet smell. She turns with terrified eyes to plead, but meets only dull, liquorish eyes, and the breath of the obscene animal is hot on her face. She sprang from her bed. Was there anyone in her room? No, only the moonlight. But the forest, the wild animal, was it then only a dream? The girl thought. It was only a dream, a horrible dream, but after all only a dream. Then a voice within her said, But all was not a dream. There was something that was worse than the dream. She walked to and fro, and when she lay down her eyelids strove against sleep. But sleep came again, and her dream was of a brown and yellow serpent. She saw it from afar, rearing its tawny hide, scenting its prey. She takes refuge in the rosary. How will she save herself? 
by plucking roses and building a wall between her and it. So she collects huge bouquets, armfuls of beautiful flowers, garlands and wreaths. The flower wall rises, and hoping to combat the fury of the beast with purity, she goes whither snowy blossoms bloom in clustering millions. She gathers them in haste. Her arms and hands stream with blood, but she pays no heed, and as the snake surmounts one barricade she builds another. But the reptile leans over the roses. The long thin neck is upon her. She feels the horrid strength of the coils as they curl and slip about her, drawing her whole life into one knotted and loathsome embrace. Then she knows not how, but while the roses fall in a red and white rain about her, she escapes from the stench of the scaly hide, from the strength of the coils. And without any transition in place or time, she finds herself listening to the sound of rippling water. There is an iron drinking cup close to her hand. She seems to recognize the spot. It is Shoreham. There are the streets she knows so well, the masts of the vessels, the downs. But something darkens the sunlight, the tawny body of the snake oscillates. The people cry to her to escape. She flies along the streets, like the wind she seems to pass. She calls for help. Sometimes the crowds are stationary, as if frozen into stone. Sometimes they follow the snake and attack it with sticks and knives. One man with colossal shoulders wields a great sabre. It flashes about him like lightning. Will he kill it? He turns, chases a dog, and disappears. The people, too, have disappeared. She is now flying along a wild plain, covered with coarse grass and wild poppies. The snake is near her, and there is no one to whom she can call for help. But the sea is in front of her. She will escape down the rocks. There is still a chance. The descent is sheer, but somehow she retains foothold. Then the snake drops. She feels its weight upon her, and with a shriek she awakes. The moon hung over the sea. The sea flowed with silver. The world was as chill as an icicle. The roses, the snake, the cliff's edge. Was it then only a dream, the girl thought? It was only a dream, a terrible dream, but after all only a dream. Then a voice within her said, But all was not a dream. There was something that was worse than the dream. She uttered a low cry. She moaned. She drew herself up on her bed, and lay with her face buried in the pillow. Again she fought against sleep, but sleep came again, and in overpowering dream she lay as if dead, and she sees herself dead. All her friends are about her, crowning her with flowers, beautiful garlands of white roses. They dress her in a long white robe, white as the snowiest cloud in heaven, and it lies in long straight plates about her limbs, like the robes of those who lie in marble in cathedral aisles. It falls over her feet, her hands are crossed over her breast, and all praise in low but ardent words the excessive whiteness of the garment. For none but she sees that there is a black spot upon the robe which they believe to be immaculate. She would warn them of their error, but she cannot. 
and when they avert their eyes to wipe away their tears, the stain might be easily seen, but as they continue their last offices, folds or flowers fall over the stain and hide it from view. It is great pain to her to find herself unable to tell them of their error, for she well knows that when she is placed in the tomb and the angels come, they will not fail to perceive the stain, and seeing it, they will not fail to be shocked and sorrowful, and seeing it, they will turn away weeping, saying, She is not for us, alas, she is not for us. And Kitty, who is conscious of this fatal oversight, the results of which she so clearly foresees, is grievously afflicted, and she makes every effort to warn her friends of their error. But there is one amid the mourners who knows that she is endeavouring to tell of the black stain, and this one, whose face she cannot readily distinguish, maliciously and with diabolical ingenuity, withdraws the attention of the others, so that they do not see it. And so it befell her to be buried in the stained robe, and she is taken away amid flowers and white cloths to a white tomb, where incense is burning, and where the walls are hung with votive wreaths and things commemorative of virginal life. But upon all these, upon the flowers and images alike, there is some small stain which none sees, but she, and the one in shadow, the one whose face she cannot recognize. And although she is nailed fast in her coffin, she sees these stains vividly, and the one whose face she cannot recognize sees them too. And this is certain, for the shadow of the face is stirred by laughter. The mourners go, the evening darkens, the wild sunset floats for a while through the western heavens. The cemetery becomes a deep green, and in the wind that blows out of heaven the cypresses rock like things sad and mute. Then the blue night comes with stars in her tresses, and out of those stars angels float softly, their white feet hanging out of blown folds their wings pointing to the stars, and from out of the earth, out of the mist, but whence and how it is impossible to say, there come other angels, dark of hue and foul-smelling, but the white angels carry swords, and they wave these swords, and the scene is reflected in them as in a mirror, the dark angels cower in a corner of the cemetery, but they do not utterly retire. The tomb mysteriously opens, and the white angels enter the tomb, and the coffin is opened, and the girl trembles, lest the angels should discover the stain she knew of, but lo, to her great joy they do not see it, and they bear her away through the blue night, through the stars of heaven. And it is not until one whose face she cannot recognize, and whose presence among the angels of heaven she cannot comprehend, steals away one of the garlands with which she is entwined, that the fatal stain becomes visible. Then, relinquishing their burden, the angels break into song, and the song they sing is one of grief. It travels through the spaces of heaven. She listens to its wailing echoes as she falls, and as she falls toward the sea where the dark angels are waiting for her. 
and as she falls she leans with reverted neck and strives to see their faces and as she nears them she distinguishes one save me save me she cried and bewildered and dazed with the dream she stared on the room now chill with summer dawn again she murmured it was only a dream it was only a dream again a sort of presentiment of happiness spread like light through her mind and again the voice within her said but all was not a dream there was something that was worse than the dream and with despair in her heart she sat watching the cold sky turn to blue the delicate bright blue of morning and the garden grow into yellow and purple and red she did not weep nor did she moan she sat thinking she dwelt on the remembrance of the hills and the tramp with strange persistency and yet no more now than before did she attempt to come to conclusions with her thought it was vague she would not define it she brooded over it sullenly and obtusely sometimes her thoughts slipped away from it but within each returning a fresh stage was marked in the progress of her nervous despair and so the hours went by at eight o'clock the maid knocked at the door kitty opened it mechanically and she fell into the woman's arms weeping sobbing the sight of the female face brought relief it interrupted the jarred and strained sense of the horrible the secret affinities of sex quickened within her the woman's presence filled kitty with the feelings that the harmlessness of a lamb or a soft bird inspires end of john norton chapter 11 recording by james carson